Welcome to The New Disruptors, a special episode taped live in front of an audience at Ada's Technical Books and Cafe on January 23rd, 2019. I will get to the podcast in just a second, introduce guests and thank sponsors, but I also want to tell you about a special project I have currently underway in the month of February 2019. It's called the Tiny Type Museum and Time Capsule. It's a literal, factual, tiny museum that you can own and keep forever and pass down through the ages. It's designed to last and it's full of genuine artifacts of type and printing history, both modern and historic. You can find out more about this campaign at Kickstarter by visiting tinytypemuseum.com, which will redirect you to the campaign, and I'll tell you a little more about it midway through this podcast. Now, the live edition. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that suggests that the future is just a smudged mirror of the past. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Tonight, we'll be revving up the time machine to talk letterpress, but first... I'd like to offer thanks to the patrons in the crowdfunding campaign that brought the new disruptors back on the air. I'd like to thank in particular this episode, Elliot Payne, my friends at Lumi, Kirk McElhern, Huang Yu Lu, Mark Schwederman, it's in the back, for being disruptor level backers, and also Mark and another disruptor backer, Kim Allberger in the audience, thank you for coming out tonight. And thank you for being part of making this back on the air. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron of the show, you get a special pin and be thanked just like this on an episode visit newdisrupt.org slash support. So what are we here about tonight? We're here to talk about letterpress for a living. I have some fine examples of people here I will introduce to you in a moment. Uh, and uh, so printing didn't change much from about 1450 until about 1950. Things became faster, mechanized, motorized, electrified, but the same technology remained largely in place. Ink was rolled onto a surface of type and images, and then paper was pressed into it. This relief or letterpress method slowly lost ground in the first half of the 20th century, and then super rapidly in the 1960s, it almost disappeared as commercial printing shifted entirely to the offset lithographic method. But not everything was forgotten. And today, letterpress is a combination of craft, pedagogy, business, and art. And these two fine people are going to be here to talk about their work, how they got here today. Uh, unfortunately, Amy Redmond had a family emergency, was unable to be here, I recommend uh, you can visit her site and look at her work. She's a fantastic printer. Uh, but to my right is Dam Damian Johnson, who's a designer and pressman at Annie's Art and Press, which is a letterpress shop in beautiful town of Ballard, uh, annexed by Seattle so unwillingly years ago. That's right. Uh, at the School of Visual Concept, he teaches both introductory and advanced courses in the letterpress program. That's one of my first classes was from Damian. His design and illustration work has appeared in The Stranger, Seattle Weekly, Sittery Arts, and Beer Advocates. Long default. Uh, he's also the founder of the art and music label Dead Accents, a veteran performing musician in Seattle's underground music scene. And to Damien's right is Sarah Colfin, who's a visual designer, illustrator, and letterpress printer. She's the proprietrix of Gallo Pinto Press and Beans and Rice, where she respectively prints limited edition prints and runs her freelance graphic design business. She thrives as an independent artist and designer where the flexibility in her schedule allows her plenty of time for opting outside. So welcome and thank you for coming out on a cold January evening. Yeah, thank you. Well, not yeah. I guess cold for <laughs> Seattle. Um, and uh, so I want to start with, you know, this is always the question is, how did you fall into the rack and ruin of letterpress? Like what decisions did you make in your life that took you down this path? Well, um, for me, I sort of stumbled into it. It was not a real 
thought out, clear choice. I took a little bit of um, uh, letterpress in college, uh, just as sort of a side project from my um, illustration program. And, um, but then I, I ended up starting my career doing web design um, and not really having anything to do with letterpress for years. Um, got laid off and then someone told me about this great um, letterpress studio up in Cedar Woolley, Stern and Faye. And I had a lot of time on my hands because I was laid off and <laughs> went to visit them and they were just the nicest, coolest people. Um, and they let me come up to help them in their ginormous printing barn, um, which was massive letterpress shop, a type foundry and a beautiful bindery. Um, and so I started just coming up there and working one day a week, helping them out. And that's the, that's the start of my story. And that's kind of an apprenticeship story. It's almost like the old school. Like, you know, you could have been living in the 1800s and had a similar sort of experience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was a great experience. Um, I'm so happy I stumbled into it. I wish, uh, if, if someone had told me to do that, I think that would have been even, I would have gotten into it even faster. Um, there, it's, it's, it's sort of a rarity, apprenticeships. You know, I had in internships in college, um, but really after college, you're, you're encouraged to go find a job um, with very little real life experience. So um, yeah, it was great. I didn't really know what I was doing with letterpress, but it certainly helped me kind of start to solidify um, some ideas around it. And Damien, how did you fall into this uh, malicious trap? For me, it was probably SVC. Just, mm -hmm. I, I, I've been an illustrator for years and freelance illustrator doing work on the side. And as work got more and more scarce for illustration, people start asking like, can you do design? Can you do this? And you just say yes, of course, you know, <laughs> never say no. So, but I realized I had to kind of know what I was doing. So I started taking design classes at SVC because I didn't want to in invest an entire college. And then ended up taking a letterpress class at SVC because I really wanted to learn sort of like the analog type part of typography, like all that. So I uh, ended up taking the one class from Jenny Wilkson and then I was hooked. And I never took another design class at SVC and just took letterpress classes until <laughs> I ended up being a teaching assistant and then becoming a teacher. You're the person I, I cite all the time. I'm working on a pitch for this article, which is people who wake up in the morning and live in the 19th century. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your, your day, because at some level you have a job that is very similar to what some people might have, not necessarily the nature of the work you made, the actual content, but your job is not very, you know, not that different from a job printer in 1850, say. No, not really. I mean, I still spend a fair amount of time on the computer uh, handling digital files and communications. But yeah, the uh, every day I get up and I go into my shop, which I'm the sole employee of Annie's Art and Press. It's not my business. I'm just the only person who works there. And uh, we're connected to Frame Shop in Ballard called Annie's Art and Frame. Um, so I'm kind of just off in my own corner doing my stuff. I have a big 10 by 15 Chandler and Price that I print everything on. And yeah, it's the same kind of mechanism they would have used years and years, years ago. And yeah, that's what I pump out all of my work on. The press is, it dates to before 1900, right? Yours? Or this is, is a uh... new style. So it's okay. probably right around 1910 or so. Mm -hmm. We're not 100% certain. But... New. <laughs> yeah, new style. <laughs> Well, it's fun when you go look around letterpress world and you're like, well, this is, you know, this is new. It's 1910 or this. Well, this is that mod, the new model they introduced in 1840. We mm. have a couple of those, but, you know, we don't hold any, nothing holds truck with that. Sarah, I just wonder the, the apprenticeship you went into. This is also Amy Redmond went through a, a similar 
apprentice with uh, with Jules and Chris mm-hmm. at uh, at Sternfe, and um, uh, I met Chris Chen, who uh, is one of the people involved in the C.C. Stern Type Museum in Portland, which is a museum that was founded from this collection of working things. After Chris passed away, uh, the material it was purchased and set up as a museum, and now it's a very lovely. In fact, one of people, oh, it's John Barry and I. I uh, took a visit there in August during uh, TypeCon in Portland, and it's um, they've got almost everything up and running. And it's amazing to see this whole array of, you know, of early 20th century equipment, some late 19th century, I think, all functioning. Um, but it's a whole day. So Chris did an apprenticeship also. When I first met Chris, he was talking about the same thing as well. I spent a few years learning this thing that, you know, people haven't done for 100 years. Um, how did that fit into your life when you come from this you know, digital background, you're going through conventional training and you fall into the past, what challenges did that bring for you? Where I mean, was it all enjoyment? Was it all, um, uh, it obviously wasn't stress because you kept going back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I had been trained to stare at a computer for eight hours a day. Um, and I think working that way, you can get things done rather quickly. You can actually conceptualize something and bring it to a finished product, you know, sometimes within a, a day. And you might be borrowing assets from Google or, or you know, the student next to you or something like that. So I think I, and I mentioned this earlier, but I really struggled with trying to figure out what I was going to do with letterpress when I showed up at the print farm um, at Stern and Faye. And I was more than happy just to help them. And I did things like, you know, I pretty much just typed for like a year, um, just really menial tasks, uh, helping them cleaning up forms or um, later on I, I graduated I was able to like help feed paper when Chris was on press <laughs> um, and they actually were really they were more forthcoming and encouraging me to start laying some designs down that I could actually um, you know do some printing with I really I think I really struggled just trying to figure out how to use the tools and the materials um, because they're so vast and they're so hands-on, it's so tangible. Um, it's a slower process also, it just wasn't what I was trained to do. Well, um, everything is custom purpose too, right? So you have to learn, I wonder how much of a part of that is that you have to learn all these mechanical processes, everything is made, there's no, you can't flip a switch and you get a different keyboard. I mean, with the monotype composite, you know, you can pull off a keyboard and put another one on <laughs> and make other changes. But um, I feel like there's a deep, I mean, there's obviously a deeply mechanical nature to letterpress, but it is, in such sharp contrast to everything else we do. Uh, I mean, how much is the mechanical part of it, like, is that part of what's appealing for you, Damien, or is it part of what weighs on you? No, I mean, there's some limitations to letterpress as opposed to obviously the digital world where you can kind of do anything. And I think that kind of helps ground me in a lot of design choices. Um, Knowing that I can't, especially on my CMP, I can't do, uh, there's just certain printing uh, things I can't do, so I gotta get and kind of move around those. Um, and try to figure out ways that I can use the machine, you know, you know, to my benefit that maybe it wasn't always designed for or. Yeah, I mean, limitations, that's always the, you know, isn't that the, the nature of art is that limitation shapes what we do. And when you have no limitation, I hear a lot of design teachers talk about the problems they face in uh, their students not understanding that maybe every font in the world shouldn't be available at every time. Mm-hmm. Um, even when I was studying design in 1986, we had Macintoshes available to us. We started with ruling pens and our professors typically said, you should type this up. Or if you're using a computer, use Courier. Don't look at this in a font. We're starting at this in basic principles. 
with letterpress, you don't have any option. You have a limited set of choices and every choice is expensive of your time. Mm. I mean, how does that shape you as a designer when you're conceiving of something that you have to, um, I mean, what point do you have to shape that by the mechanical limitations and it can affect what you want to make? Yeah, um, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think that it's it's really helped my design because um, like you said, when you get your first MacBook Pro and you open it up, there's like a million fonts on it and and it's it's overwhelming and you know there's really no guidance or wherewithal why you might choose a font over another. And when you're working in a letterpress studio and you've got hands-on metal type, um, it just it gives you much more of an appreciation for it because you're like if you're gonna set a row of ten point, you know, Futura, you know that that's a lot harder to do than if you were setting a row of like 20 point Futura. Um, it just, it, it, it makes you way more mindful to um, what, how those letters are composed and how much space they take up on a form. And um, so I think my experience of like really hands-on um, use of metal type and plates for imagery, um, has just made me a lot more thoughtful of how I not only choose fonts or choose typefaces, um, but I compose these objects on a page. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also interesting because your apprenticeship was in a place that was already, I mean, this gets in this whole discussion of like, what does letterpress become? And uh, uh, Chris and, and Jules were running, uh, they had hot metal typesetting, so they could produce type on demand within constraints. They had to have the, the molds, the matrices for the type they wanted to produce. Obviously, you can't just make whatever you want, but that's less of a constraint if you can, they could typeset books and poetry and and uh, the, the extent of stuff that most of us don't have access to in metal or in the original fonts. And yeah, so, they were high tech. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> high, it was, you know, straight out of the 1880s mm -hmm. is super high tech. It's amazing how technology had advanced and then it kind of stalled and then the phototype revolution overtook it and then digital but but it didn't make that meaningless it was still in use and there, there are places i've talked to a number of places that are still doing hot metal monotype particularly in some linotype monotype was more suited for book composition so there's more of that still running but it's you know it's out there and mm -hmm. um damien i thought maybe you have a, a sense of um not having worked in a hot metal shop so you mm -hmm. have metal and wood type and things you've created blocks and linos you've carved um, but you also use photopolymer which is a, a modern plate. You can take digital files and produce a rubbery letterpress capable plate. So how do you decide in those constraints between using something that's maybe, or maybe we could talk about this word authentic, using something that's authentic was made before the whole collapse <laughs> of the metal industry and something that is fresh and new and digital. What's that trade-off? Um, I mean, if I have the lead type handy, uh, if I have a face that I like, um, I'll use it just because it's right there and I don't have to deal with getting a plate made because I don't make the plates myself. I have to send out for them. So that's a whole other thing. Um, sometimes my work will be like, oh, my God, we have no Mother's Day cards left. We need a Mother's Day card. I can go make them that afternoon, like with the type I have upstairs and they can be really beautiful and unique. When I choose to make things digitally, one is uh, if I want to do anything that kind of looks like handwriting or if I want to do my own illustrations, I will often opt to go digitally um, as opposed to even carving. I know even sometimes this is probably Carl Montford would hate me for this, but sometimes I'll actually carve lino and scan it and then get a polymer plate made of that. <laughs> Usually that's because I wanted to carve it at a certain size and then I need to resize it later for different uses. So I'm going to do a little terminology too with me. Linoleum blocks can be made type high so they can be printed on a letterpress. 
and uh, you know you carve away so the material remaining is what you want to print and it's great it's fun we did the you know the SVC classes uh, you learn how to do this in SVC you can actually do I felt like even the first year class or the sort of the first time people had touched letterpress they would come in and sometimes make amazing stuff never having used carving tools working with this kind of, you know, not of all of buying the expensive linotype, the different grades you can buy, and you're, you know, trying not to cut yourself, and it's this whole thing, and then you print it, and some of that work from, I mean, you've taught Letterpress One, right? I mean, some yeah. of that work, um, what, what is Linotype like as an expressive medium? Because there's not much like it that we'd encounter, uh, most people would encounter day to day. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, anything you draw, like once you've transferred to a block and you carve it, there's a little level of like collaboration that happens between you and the materials. Um, like you're drawing, you, you can't completely control everything that happens in letterpress. And I think that's kind of a beautiful, beautiful thing about it. Like, especially going back to type, like wood type, um, some of the lead types, like some of that wood type I have in my shop where we have it SVC is like a hundred years old and it's been used by hundreds of people and they've dropped it and dinged it and done all these things and put their little marks on it. So by the time you get to it, you have this little like, unique D, you know, that no one else would have. Like you can go and download a distressed font online, but you know, every E will look identical or maybe they have an alt or something like that. But in general, like, you know, someone's done or they've dropped a bitmap text over everything or whatever. I've done all that stuff too. <laughs> but I mean, when you have those, you know, unique pieces, it's just a, it's like a, it's a special little Fabergé egg of printing mm -hmm. happiness. It's great. It's <laughs> Yeah, we're going to linotype uh, because you can't control it perfectly, like ink levels and pressure. And maybe the linoleum block you bought was slightly dented in such a way. And even like, you know, thousandth of an inch will make a difference in how much, you know, the ink will press. Yeah, I did this when I'm working on a class with, with Damien. Remember, I had a little ding in my in my uh, black area. I didn't realize it. And I printed everything and I made a touche plate, which is an offset thing. We don't do this in the letterpress world, which is I made a little thing to, to print over it just to fill in the lacuna <laughs> there. So my black would be filled. You could yeah. almost not see it. But I learned a little bit about lino that day yeah. after printing everything. But uh, it's just, it's it feels sometimes like you're wrestling with the beast though. Like it's a, it's such a, um, like a physical process, you know, you're, it's not, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm describing too personal a process, but, but Sarah, do you, th do you think of it that way as, um, it's almost, I mean, I feel like it's like body work and you're doing rolfing or you're doing whatever, like letterpress printing is a full body experience. It requires a lot of energy and stamina. Um, and you're, you have to become one with the machine. Is that your experience too? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, talking about, you know, lino cuts, they're immensely satisfying to carve because, you know, that lino can just be nice and, you know, soft and perfect for the blade to, to go through. But I often um, will create really big plates and with like lots and lots of detail. And my first pass might be almost an entire solid color. And then my second pass, I have to cut away like 60% of the plate. And that just sucks <laughs> just like you know my arm hurts my little arthritic knuckle in my hand is throbbing at the end and there's no going back right once yeah. you do the reduction cut that's it yeah so yeah i do a process that's um called a reduction cut where you're using a single plate to create an entire um print so each successive layer of ink is made from the same plate and um, with each pass, you're reducing or carving away the plate. So once you, and usually the colors go from light to dark. So once you've hit that final ink layer, which is the dark layer, there's like 10% of the plate left and you can't go start over. So if you're halfway through and you do like a big gouge in the middle, it's a real bummer. You can recover from it. 
I've learned <laughs> that it's it takes a while and you know more more shoulder pain with more carving. So. That's right. Uh, I, I was thinking also it, it gets back to the nature of what's authentic, right? And carving feels very authentic, even if you're starting from a drawing or a digital file, you're still you know, uh, transferring it to the lino block and carving it, it's it's a very, you know, it's probably the most physical thing I think, or most hand-oriented thing we do as letterpress printers is probably carving, I guess. I'm thinking, I mean, the other mm -hmm. stuff is mechanical, but that's the most direct hand thing because everything else is a transference. But I want to get this notion of, of authenticity and, um, and I know you both have different takes on it. And like the dirty secret of letter modern letterpress is the Martha Stewart secret, which is that what most modern people think is letterpress is not what was traditionally it, this hard hit impression so that you can feel, you're like, oh, I can feel the type as it cut in the paper. It's like, no, letterpress printers would largely have killed themselves over that <laughs> because you would have crushed your type in the days in which um, you're using even hardened metal type. You, you wanted a kiss impression. Well, it's funny is I've seen some examples recently. Someone was posting a photo of something that said, hey, for all you, what they call a kiss printer, because you're making it just touch the paper. Just the ink comes off like a film and you can't even almost feel it. And some people, someone posted this picture of a deep impression uh, from you know, the 1800s and said, hey, all you kiss printers, they did it then too. We just don't talk about that. But like, so the, the notion of what we think of as, if you ask somebody, what is authentic letterpress? You're like, oh, it's a thick, creamy paper with the type slammed into it. You worked with this interesting transition period. So you've got the sort of pre-monotype uh, or pre-hot metal era type, which also came after it. And then there are many people who thought hot metal in the 1880s was terrible because it took away, you know, it degraded the quality of type. It wasn't as good. And yet that is now a standard. And then you also work digitally. So do you have thoughts about where this notion of authenticity, like how much we owe to the past or a notion of what people think of as the past is about? Oh man, that's a really good question. Take your time. <laughs> yeah. I think that is, I don't know if it's like industry standard across the board. I think that's a very, you know, one-off personal sort of, you know, everyone's got their own opinion on what is authentic letterpress. A lot of the stuff that I'm doing right now, um, I'm doing lino cuts, but I'm not really printing. I don't print with type very often. So I would say that I'm not even really doing letterpress. I'm doing more art prints. I think that for me, if you're printing on metal type or hot metal type, that I guess that's what I would, or wood type certainly, of course, that's that would feel authentic to me. That would feel like you're really using um, historic assets, you know, in your current pieces. But that being said, I think photopolymer is a beautiful thing. I think it makes it really accessible. I think it makes people, I think it's expanded the boundaries of what people do. But yeah, as far as authenticity, I, I, I think of like a, I think of like Chris and Jules's shop, which was just like stuffed with metal type, old presses, um, and the combination of, of using those together, that feels really authentic to me. So maybe more the creative process than the actual material being used? I think it's, yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think I should um, say the, cre the process of creating like with the equipment as opposed to. Uh... Right. I think using the old equipment and depending on what you're printing, I, using the old equipment, I think definitely is, has that feeling of authenticity. Damon, do you have thoughts about where that sits? I mean, you have a shop full of metal and you've got a computer in there too. So it's. You've got both extremes and whatever you want them. I do. I mean, I do a lot of don't don't do a lot of, but I mean, a big part of doing letterpress, like custom letterpress work, is doing wedding invitations. 
stuff like that. And people are usually really specific about what they want things to look like. And they, as much as they might enjoy pulling out drawers of type and looking at old mm-hmm. cuts from the 1960s and stuff, really they want, they've got something pretty much in mind. And so going digital for the design is kind of what I always will do on those. Um, I'll have them send me their illustrator files and I'll make, make them ready for films and get plates made and print them up and they'll be good. If someone came to me with the challenge of printing everything with lead, wood, and lino, I would love that. That would be really great, but it would cost them a lot more money than doing something <laughs> like that. Um, people are always willing to spend money for weddings, but uh, it's I don't like charging more if I don't have to. And also the idea of the anxiety that would come from doing a wedding set entirely from lino and wood and <laughs> lead type is kind of overwhelming to think about right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you, I mean, that's the thing is you, you're comfortable working and both of you are comfortable working on all these different media. And it's just the final thing is you put it on a press that has all of these wild parameters. And, you know, I was, I printed this book uh, entirely from photopolymer plate, almost entirely from photopolymer plates two years ago. And boy, did I learn this one press, but I could tell you, I could draw a topographical map of the flatbed of this press be like, you know, I got to like move this screw, you know, one sixteenth of a turn. Cause if I don't, it's not going to print evenly on that side. So I feel like you get to know it that way, but like whatever materials you use, you still have this physical process at the end that you're interacting with that device. I mean, does that bring, I keep coming back to authenticity, but I feel like when people want letterpress, what the reason they say it is they want something that feels real to them in a way that a lot of media today doesn't feel real. Do you get people coming to you asking that way or do people express it to you? I feel like your Damien's going to have a better answer <laughs> for this because I'm not a job printer and I don't teach students, but my take on that and my understanding is that um, letterpress is really appealing to people because it is tangible. It's hands-on. It's like, it's like a craft and in my career and a lot of people you know stare at a computer eight hours a day and you know we're so removed from from using our hands and standing and walking around and and building things with our hands i think there's something really appealing about letterpress and other types of arts and crafts where you really you know it is hands-on i think people just miss that on a day-to-day basis and I think, yeah, I think that's, you know, I think that's why SVC does so well. They have such a great <laughs> shop and they offer lots of ways for people to, you know, get involved and, and try it press. Hi, folks. I just want to take a moment of your time away from this podcast to tell you about a project that is maybe not so strangely fully aligned with this episode. Over the last couple of years, particularly those of you who may have followed my career, know that I focus a lot more on research and writing about type and printing, both the history of it and how it has evolved to the present day, including the resurgence of letterpress, new technologies have been developed, and a lot more. I've been trying to look at the past through the lens of the present and the present through the lens of the past. I find the topic really fascinating, and I love how people can express their creativity using tools that are hundreds of years old, but combining those with techniques that are absolutely modern like laser cutters and 3D printing and all the rest. Well, this led me to think about how best to preserve the memory of the past. After having visited four type and printing museums in the last couple of years, I realized that many of these institutions are teetering not exactly on the brink, but none of them have, say, rich endowments or big-pocketed donors who are keeping them around forever. I thought 
what if there were a way to put a museum in people's own individual hands? What if there were a way to take a number of genuine printing artifacts and type artifacts, things that were made in the past in some cases, or were made today using historical and modern techniques, pull it all together and make it a, a literal tiny museum and time capsule. So that's what I've done with my friend Anna Robinson, who is formerly of Glowforge, the 2D laser cutter maker, and is a fine woodworker herself, currently in Coventry School. We have devised a plan to make beautiful museum cases that are full of historic artifacts from the past and present. So there'll be wood type and metal punches and matrices used to cast type. There'll be flung these kind of paper molds from which type could be cast for newspapers. There will be a tiny replica of a type case used in letterpress. There'll be samples of printing. There'll be a book that comes with it too called Six Centuries of Printing and Type. And it will be the museum's docent. It'll explain everything that's in it, but also that span of almost 600 years from Gutenberg to the present and how things have developed. Now I've made this a Kickstarter campaign as is my want because there's a lot of overhead to pull this together. I'm going to make a limited edition of up to a hundred of these tiny museums and they cost a thousand dollars each. I, I know that's a big price. I look at my own pocketbook and think, gosh, that's a lot of money. But in order to do this right, I need to fund about 50 of them to start with, to have the quantity to cover the overhead, to have pieces made exclusively for the museums and to acquire some of the things that are a little harder to find and to print the book, which will be printed by letterpress. And if the campaign raises enough money, it will also be set in monotype hot metal. I have so much I want to do with this, and I'm so excited about making tiny museums that will go into people's hands and that will be, again, literal museums. These will be full of genuine artifacts and something that I hope does act as a time capsule. And it will teach you things, it will let you teach others something to share and talk about, and something that in 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, will still have the value of preserving the memory of what's gone before. You can go to tinytypemuseum.com to find out more. Uh, that'll lead you to the Kickstarter campaign while it's active, and it will lead you to more information after the campaign is over. Thank you so much for all your support of this podcast and other projects. And now let's get back to the live event. This isn't necessarily an ad for us. We see all the walls associated <laughs> in different ways, but it, it is great. I mean, they do things, and this is what's been fascinating across the country too. I haven't had a chance to visit... Uh, enough places like this but the fact that there's all these programs now where sometimes it's um there are you know uh, institutions portland has this great art center i'm dying to go to because they're doing all kinds of art including letterpress in a community driven space but you know you can go in svc does these classes other people do them too where you're going for two hours and you can print really interesting stuff in two hours and learn a lot you know you're not a letterpress printer at the end of it at some level but you've printed something genuine with it or you could spend you know you could become like damien and get sucked in and Become an instructor and um, work in the 19th century, too. Yeah. Uh, if you want. <laughs> if you want. What is the, and I'll get a little technical here, but I am curious. So what is the ideal piece of gear or something you want in your shop that you don't have and would be maybe maybe practical to get? I don't know. Vandercook. Vandercook. Yeah, so explain one. what that yeah. is. Explain, that's a flat, the flatbed. Uh, flatbed, yeah, cylinder presses. You have one, right? They do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I borrow it. Yeah. I know. This is what a lot of This is what a lot of people think of. If you go to SBC, you go to their site. Most they have three Vander Cooks. What most people yeah. think of as letterpress now, but they were proof presses. They were meant just for proofing work in newspapers and other places before it went on the real press. Right. Um, but these are like the real presses now. The yeah. big cylinder press. Um, the paper's kind of loaded in the top and rolls around a drum and goes across your form, which is in the bed, which is what Glenn was talking about. You could do lots of cool stuff like a. 
split fountain is one of my favorite things where you can make like something go from red to blue and in the middle it makes this little purple. Uh, on my press, it's a treadle press, you know, the big wheel on the side which you're seeing has the big ink plate on the top that just spins. So it's oscillating the whole plate. So I can't really do that. Now, there is a hack around that to do it, but it's not as good. Um, I can lock my plate in place, but it just doesn't work as well. Like Vandercooks are just so, I don't know, you can get a better impression because you're not stamping the entire form at once like you are in a CMP. You're slowly rolling the form over like this much at a time. So you can really smash paper with those things. Um, which I can't really do on my CMP. Um, people will give me a job that has like a big flood of color and they mm -hmm. want it done on my CMP. And I have to let them know, like, it's not going to, I can do a lot of tricks, with, but it's not going to come out like a perfect flood. Well, the Vandercook's like a two-dimensional problem. It's a line of force that goes across the paper mm -hmm. and all the other kinds of, the, all the platen presses are three-dimensional. It's like you have an entire area that has to be pushed with exactly the right pressure at once, which is impossible. Yeah. And yet they were doing this in the 18, early 1800s. Yeah. That kind of press. The like, platens float on four bolts too. Like in every micro adjustment pushes one mm -hmm. corner forward and backwards. And you'll spend an entire day balancing that thing. And I do that. Well, I do as little as possible because I hate doing it. It takes forever. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's just a, it's a nightmare. <laughs> this was the greatest investment you could have made around 2000 or late 1990s was to buy all the Vandercook presses that were being thrown out because uh, I talked to uh, the fellow at Boxcar Press, um, Harold Kyle, who um, they make a lot of these photopolymer plates. They have a commercial business. They do a lot of fancy letterpress printing, but they also make plates for almost everybody in the country. They do a very good job of it. And uh, Harold said, you know, he, I forget if he bought one back then, but he said, you know, he could have gotten one for $100 and you bought them for less than, I think slightly more than the scrap value. And now they're what, like $15,000 for going in good condition. I have some for 20 Jeez. And so, but these are the best presses for pedagogy often because it's harder to set something up for a platen. You can put stuff in the bed and kind of look at it and your teacher comes by, make sure you're not going to destroy the press and then you're going to roll it slowly. Yeah. It's not this ka-chunk, ka-chunk, you know, or OSHA would be mad at you. Totally. So, so Sarah, I'm sorry. So Sarah, what, what's the piece of gear that you would like that you don't have? Um... And, and why should be the answer? <laughs> Well, I think the one that I'm missing, uh, that I miss the most is I would like to have a, like a guillotine paper cutter. Mm. Um, it's a real basic piece of equipment. And I luckily, you know, Amy, who's not here, she's lives really close by and I can run over to her place and trim some paper or I work with, you know, conventional print shops and sometimes they'll cut down parent sheets for me, but it, it would just be really nice to just, I've got everything else that I kind of need. But I kind of got to lean on someone else to like get my paper down. And, it is um, pretty sweet. I have a that's that's yeah. my friend Damien for me. I'll tell you mm -hmm. the most terrifying thing I've done in the last several years. Damien saw this is I was cutting. I spent weeks printing this letter, this book on letterpress. And I needed to cut the pages down to the size for binding. And I didn't think about how terrifying that would be because the slightest error might have meant I'd have to reprint and put in hours or days of work. And whole, I mean, how much uh, buckets of sweat coming off me for hours? It's like, kind yeah. of thank you again. For your <laughs> I, used to, I used to take my stuff to the FedEx Kinko's down the street once to cut because I didn't have a guillotine for a while. And at one point I brought him a big stack of paper and we looked at it and everything's right. And the guy's like, well, yeah, this should be no problem. And at some point he flipped the top sheet. <laughs> oh my God. And uh, I came back to get it and all of them, like one was cut correctly and everything else was cut wrong. And I was like, oh, rad. <laughs> then you got a hydraulic paper or an oil driven. Uh... Yeah. I, I recommend everybody, there's a video, uh, my friend Anna, who's in the audience, sent to me about uh, them printing the Oxford English Dictionary in, was it 1922? Something like that? Or, yeah. Yeah. It, silent film. yeah, silent film, and it's an amazing 
thing. You're like, some of it's very familiar. Some of it, you're just like, what are they doing? There's a guy rubbing black material on his hair and then putting it down. I'm like, static, I guess. And then you kill, like, what is this? But the, the most terrifying thing, I was showing this to my 11-year-old, was there's a bit where a guy's cutting stuff down and he's like putting it in there and putting his hands in and cutting it. I'm like, okay, so today you have two levers and they're, you can't see this if you're listening at home, they're far apart. Your hands have to be so far apart, you cannot cut off your appendages. <laughs> and this guy's just like, drip, drip, you know, and giant blades are coming down. Like, so that is different now, fortunately. <laughs> we do have some safety Good rules. Yeah. Um, but it is fun to go look at that. Like they'll show the New York Times, how it was made up, you know, someone will brought a camera and there's a film, um, uh, Goodbye, Edwin Sherlew, uh, about the last day they used the hot metal linotypes at New York Times where they switched to computers, uh, early computer typesetting. And um, it's uh, that kind of thing. You see it and you're like, there were thousands, I mean, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, I guess, involved in it. And this massive disruption, this massive chain. And so we're like the uh, I count myself in this. I did spend a year. So I like I had my 2018, I didn't do very much printing at all. None, none in fact. Uh, but um, I feel like we're the end descendant of this crazy multi-century mechanical age. And now it's entirely different. So many fewer people, people are employed in the same professions. There may be more people employed in printing today, for all I know, than there were. But nobody, you know, tiny percentage are doing binding compared to whatever. I mean, how does that make you feel in terms of, I mean, these are, this is, both craft and art and love for you all, but you also, this part of your, you know, it's part of Sarah's living. This is Damien's day job. How does that make you feel, I guess, you know, being the end result of this long process of where we're at and, and preserving this art, how do you feel about being in that role? Or does that seem like a role to you? Being a steward for this sort of thing? Yeah, you know, you're, you're teaching it, you're moving it forward. Sarah did, you know, your apprenticeship, you acquired knowledge that would have been lost that you're gonna, you have with you pass on. I mean. There is a stewardship role, but it's also part of your creativity. How does it uh, do? Does it ever even become part of my? Am I asking a question that you don't ask yourself? I don't know. I mean, I guess I feel cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're doing that. Yeah. My, I mean, my students. It's weird. Like, I don't know if it's the nature of. I don't know what it is exactly, but everyone comes in. You know, from you know, they walk over from Amazon or Facebook or whatever. Whoever's hiring people these days. And they kind of talk disparagingly about their jobs. They're like, mm -hmm. oh, I work at Amazon. It's like, and it has that weird feel. I mean, maybe they're saying it to me because they think I'm a Luddite or something. <laughs> um, it's like, I get it. Your job is to destroy small business. That, that's cool. <laughs> no, but, um, <laughs> they're listening. <laughs> I'm sure they are. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, they, it's, it's weird because that is a kind of a weird thing. They kind of act like, oh, I'm so sorry I do this. I'd really like to, you know, get away from the computer, and that, and so I feel like it's kind of a, a relief for a lot of people to mm -hmm. get away from that stuff. So I, I feel like I'm providing a bit of a service in that way, uh, but I think it also helps digital designers and stuff, people who who have only worked in Illustrator and in Design, and maybe years ago freehand and Quark and all that stuff. Uh, I think it kind of helps them rethink their designs and stuff. So I, I feel like, you know, not, not that I'm actually providing a service, but there is like, I feel like I'm helping people through mm -hmm. maybe artistic or creative problem solving that they wouldn't have had before. But yeah, I don't know. I I haven't, yeah, to be answer, I really haven't thought about that too much. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to uh, make my bosses think this wasn't a terrible idea <laughs> to buy me a letterpress shop. <laughs> I want to, we're going to get to a business, business stuff a little bit right. in a moment too. Um, but this reminded me of a thing it's in, um, uh, I have some. I have a ringer in the audience. Uh, the, the short history of printing. It's Robert uh, Bringhurst, not Bringhurst. Bringhurst. Cha Marshall. Yeah, Chapel and the, the co. The, it was co-written with uh, the second edition. 
I'll, I'll, Bringer's brought it up today. Bringer's brought up today. So the book, it's a, it's like, what's it called? A shorter history. Short, short history of printing. Short history of printing, like from, you know, Gutenberg to present, but it kind of with an interesting focus and it kind of gives you an insight into each era. It's a small book. It's unfortunate. It's David Argodine publisher, which is a great uh, press for type stuff. And it's unfortunately out of print, which is baffling to me because it's an amazing book. You can find it online used, but there's a thing in it. it the, the second edition or later edition was updated for photopolymer and phototype. And I wish I had the quote with me right now because Bringhurst, who wrote that part, goes in this rant about like, well, you know, uh, Gutenberg, you know, he they were doing type and you were printing it. And then um, uh, phototype, you know, when they started photographing type, uh, there's really no relationship to the original. It's people doing, you know, he, Gutenberg was imitating the scribes, but what are these people doing? You're mm -hmm. imitating this imitation. It's so reserved and planographic printing, uh, you know, the offset printing is a flat process. There's no relief. It's just a film that attaches to a plate and it kind of rubs off. It's like, this is a, a kind of a fake of printing. It has nothing to do with mm -hmm. real printing. So there's none of the impact. And so you're kind of really like, wow, that's kind of, wow, that's a little <laughs> out there. And it gets into, there's people who get into more, um, Oh, I don't know, cultural theory and cultural, like Marxist theory. Oh, there we go. Yeah, a short history of the printed word, right, by Warren Chapel and then updated by Brayhurst later. Thank you very much. Um, we'll see if I find the quote and I'll put it in the show notes for uh, if you look the episode later. But, um, but there is that sense that sometimes people think, I think when you work in a digital realm all the time, that you're not really doing anything, that it lacks a meaning because it doesn't seem to have a presence in the world. Sarah, you're working regularly in both. You know, you have different kinds of clients and different kinds of work. Do you feel a sense of tension between maybe the, the, a reality or unreality to digital versus letterpress? Does that enter into design or, or your aesthetic at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, I mean, I work on my laptop um, for my freelance business. And I like some of the work that I do there. And when I print my own projects on my Vandercook. I really love that work. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of my, my feeling there. Um, uh, yeah. So you have, I mean, I guess that's the question is like, what do we derive meaning from? That's a bigger issue than this period of time. Um, let me ask you business questions since we're on this. I wanted to ask that, you know, particularly Damien, I know you sort of built this job. You created a job for yourself uh, and helped build a business plan to say like, this could work. I mean, um, I'm curious about that process. Like how, uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little, you've talked in the past about some of the mechanics of being able to sell directly, uh, your work directly through a shop that's associated and then selling through channels. And you don't have to get into the nitty gritty, but you do quite sure. a lot of that side of it too. Is um, I guess the first question there is too, is how does letterpress sell? I mean, how is it priced relative to other kinds of, uh, you know, work, especially greeting card uh, kind of work that you do? Uh, it's, I mean, letterpress sells well. I mean, uh, you know, evites and greetings.com never replaced getting a card in the mail. It just didn't happen. Uh, people like that. They want to, they want to touch it. And I think that whole Martha Stewart way of like deep impression mm -hmm. on your cards, I think that sort of adds to the whole visceral experience of having a card and holding and feeling it. There's just more evidence that it's real and then it was, you know, made by a human being. It resonates in a way that I think digital just probably never really will with us. We're not those kind of animals we don't see in 4K. You know, we, we buy 4K TVs. Like, you know, it's all these weird things we promise ourselves that these things are going to help us. But when it comes down to it, we just want like something that someone drew on. You know, you want the post-it note your kid handed you with the weird little robot on. I mean, you want those things. And uh, I think uh, letterpress just it hits that little part of our, our mind that wants that real thing. 
Well, let me ask you, and this is the nitty gritty question is, so what does a letterpress card cost versus say like a, you know, Hallmarky kind of thing or mass produced, or, or should, I know you sell a lot of independent, it's, there's also a lot of independent cards. I haven't too. bought a Hallmark card in forever and I haven't really looked. I want to say they're probably around like 350 or something for mm -hmm. a Hallmark card, maybe $4. Uh, letterpress card in my shop on average is $5. Mm -hmm. Some of the ones that maybe have like gold foil or some crazier printing process added to them, which made them more expensive, might be as much as six, but five or six bucks. So without getting too much into the financials of running your part of this business, but it's, um, uh, can you tell me a little about how you, you know, conceived of this as something you would pitch like, Hey, you should hire me to work in the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was at this shop forever. Uh, Annie's art and frame They're owned by the coolest people and run by the coolest people. Uh, Peter, Christine, Sarah, they're just awesome. And I'd been working there forever. I had, uh, avoided getting into design and tech work and stuff for so long. Cause this was just such a wonderful job. I was in bands that had toured a lot. They let me go on tour and come back. It was just awesome. I'd been there for about 14 years and I was kind of, you know, the, the job, everyone kind of gets hired there and moves up slowly. And there came a point where I was just in the way of everyone trying to move into the next job. <laughs> like they needed to fire me or find some place for me to go if anyone else wanted to move up. So we had been selling so many letterpress cards and I'd been taking classes at SVC. I had been doing, I'd been a teaching assistant. And Jenny called me up one day and said, hey, this woman in Issaquah is selling her entire shop. Do you want it? <laughs> and I just kind of jokingly mentioned to my boss, like, hey, you know, you should buy me a letterpress shop and I'll just make all the cards for us. And she's like, OK, let's do that. I was like, oh, holy shit, that's awesome. Yeah. There were some spreadsheets that followed, I assume. Maybe. Yeah, the business plan then came together. <laughs> With them uh, hoping I made money in four years. Yeah. So, but how many years has it been? We're on fourth year. Yeah, right. I want to ask you more. <laughs> um, but the, that margin is the interesting part, though. So, this, I mean, this ties back to the authenticity part. Is that people know when they see a letterpress card, I mean, there, there's a pop up shop in Ballard, not too far from Annie's. I think it's gone now. Or, no, no, am I thinking there? Uh, there were some pop up shops around Seattle or tiny shops that would sell like a lot of letterpress stuff. I'd see letterpress cards in other shops, and it gets, you know, sort of marketed and advertised a certain way. People, know they want it and they're willing to pay this premium. So the margin seems to be, you know, else you're not buying through the channel. You're making it directly and selling the thing you make. You know all the costs and they're all controlled. Yeah, and I, having the shop is nice because then I can sort of try stuff out. Like I can do 25 cards and put them in the shop. And if mm -hmm. no one gets my joke, I'm like, all right, I'm not going <laughs> not, not to try to sell that to everyone. But uh, or I would do the uh, craft shows, Urban Craft Uprising every winter and summer. And that's a good place to kind of try stuff out, too, and also meet other shops. But yeah, then I also sell those shops around this region. Well, it's also interesting. I think this is an advantage of letterpress is that it is actually, I mean, I know there's there's all this time setting certain kinds of things up, but at the other level, it's not like you're sending a job out to an offset printer and all the overhead of that to get the quality or whatever you need. You're not photocopying something. This is printing, but you can do it you know, yourself when you want to relatively quickly in some cases, or try a bunch of different ideas with the same ink colors. Say, or, yeah, totally. Uh, um, Sarah, you've integrated letterpress into your design practice, and I wonder how that contrasts. I mean, are different are people coming to you with different needs, or are you saying does someone come and say I want X, and you say you know this would be a letterpress track thing, and this would be a digital or offset or or digital printed version? How do you make those? Uh, how does that come into your practice? Um, well, to be honest, it doesn't really that doesn't really come up with my work with my clients too often. Mm -hmm. If I sneak some letterpress into a job, it's just on the DL and I'm just doing it to get like the right typeface or the right texture 
So I'll just pull a proof of something and digitize it and then use it in, in a, you know, a digitally composed piece that gets printed digitally <laughs> more often than not. Um, I've had a few clients that it's been really fun. I've done like a, a big broadside piece for. It's pretty elaborate. It's not really a typical job. So I, I really, you know, my freelance work for the most part is is pretty separate. Yeah, when I can go down to the shop to source materials or typefaces and and bring it up into the design, that's it's pretty satisfying. It I feel better about the tax write-offs too. When I do, that. <laughs> do you primarily make your work to sell it directly to people? Yes. Yeah. I've um, and I've just I'm kind of new at it really. Mm-hmm. So I. I have a website and I've got some artwork right now hanging in a couple of places and I brought it with me to a few places, but it's really new to me. After we finish taping, there'll be <laughs> items for sale by these fine creative people. Um, I was going to ask what, ch- there's, there's still the challenges question. I say, you know, th- so I feel like letterpress, one of the things about letterpress in letterpress in 2019 is that it's, there's like this weird, infle- I don't know if it's inflection point is the right word, but like there's stuff happening. And so, you know, I have a 2D cutter, 2D laser cutter at home and I can make stuff. And, I'll, and you know, this local company, Glowforge, I always mentioned, they sponsored a previous episode. They're not sponsoring this, but I bring them up because they've sold like 10,000 plus of at least that many of this unit. And um, there are other laser cutters out there. There's service bureaus, like getting material, you know, the photopolymer process is not cheap. It's pretty expensive per square inch, but it it's affordable relative to these kinds of projects, you know, people doing wedding invitations are willing to pay those expenses mm-hmm. to get that output at a bigger picture. But I feel like there are increasing options to make stuff that can be letterpress printed that doesn't have a historic source. I mean, do you, from your perspective, I know you two aren't like deeply enmeshed in like the digital cutting and whatever side, but but this comes through to you. What do you think the future of letterpress might be from what you've seen? I mean, is it gonna continue on? as a crafty thing, which we're relying a lot in the past, do you think there's more to come that that's going to integrate more directly, like digitally produced analog items? Well, yeah, I get to speak on that. You know, because I say I have a lot of, my students have been a lot of tech people. I've had a, one guy in particular, this guy, Daniel, he's awesome. I don't know if he's in Seattle anymore, but he had, uh, he took the class because he wanted to learn about it, but he hated the analog nature of it entirely. He's like, this is nonsense. Like what, how is this set up? <laughs> everything about it drove him crazy. So he wanted to do 3D printing of everything. And he figured out a way to design lattice work inside his 3D letters he was gonna print that could survive the like hundreds and hundreds of pounds that pressure was gonna provide. I, it, the, his his mind like working on those things was really great. I mean, he and then he found problems with that process. He realized, oh, okay, I gotta actually build a little higher and sand it down. because. You know, it's fun to watch him work within like essentially brand new tech using, but utilized on these new machines. I mean, photopolymer isn't the most recent thing. It's actually this laser cutting, mm-hmm. um, which is can produce really beautiful work. Uh, Brad Vetner, his stuff is incredible. He'll print letterpress letters, scan them, and put them in Illustrator, and then plug that into the Glowforge, and then reverse cut them out of sheets of old wood he finds in the woods, and then print that. It's like there's so many cool things you can do with new stuff. Um, and it's, but yeah, it's funny. The, the base unit you're using is still like, you know, my press from 1910. <laughs> well, and the question is that gets you more into like, there's that, I don't know if it's a debate or battle, different, you know, there's also like, you can ignore people who are telling you something's inauthentic or not really letterpress, but there is kind of this wash of like, what is printmaking where using a letterpress, a press as something that's sort of like almost 
not like silk screen, but like a like a printmaking press where there's not a connection necessarily to the the typographic origin. And then other times you're doing stuff that this is even if you're using new materials is very typographically driven or or traditionally driven. Um, Sarah, do you feel like you have a sense of where? I mean, you've had the, the apprenticeship again. You have this tie that dates you really deeply in the past. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense where things may be going? Have you encountered that in uh, in your work or study? I mean, kind of like what Damien was just say, now saying, I think that, I mean, I think with laser cutting and 3D printing, and before that was photopolymer, they seem pretty, like pretty radical ways to create plates and plates seem to be made in very much in a standard way for so long prior to that. I think they are really exciting. You know, it's, it's, it's adding a lot of momentum, but uh, yeah, at the, you know, underneath all these plates, you need the big press. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think, I think that there's some, there's a lot of exciting ideas and, and people are getting rich textures and maybe um, using new materials to create shapes and letters. But, but I think at the foundation, you, you'll, you're always going to need a letter press shop with letter press <laughs> equipment. That's good. And I was going to say, they aren't making new letter presses, but they are, there is still some equipment being made, but not like the stuff that was made for mass printing, really. I mean, there's certain categories of things that are still made, um, but it's amazing how much life there is in the old, uh, the old gear. I hope you join me in thanking uh, Damien and Sarah for being part of this podcast. Thank you for coming out. Been the new disruptors. The theme music is by Jeff Tolbert. Audio lives at SoundCloud and the site runs on Squarespace. This episode was hosted by me, Glenn Fleischman. You can help support this podcast and fund the production of more episodes by visiting newdisrupt.org slash support and find out about monthly and yearly membership options that include access to a private discussion forum for listeners, a fancy enamel pin, and being thanked on an episode. This episode copyright 2018 A Periodical LLC. It's licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND3. License. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution by linking back to newdisrupt.org. I only ask you don't offer it for sale. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.